we last left uh, you last week sometime, we were doing this handout called the Worldview Overview. And I just, uh, by way of review, we want to say that a worldview answers three questions. And those three questions perfectly line up with the three, uh, first three elements of the eight essential elements of the gospel series. So if you look at the titles, if you have element, uh, the teaching from the introduction or element one or element two, and you have the eight essential uh, elements of the biblical Christian gospel, and you compare that to a worldview, the first question in a worldview is who or what is ultimately real? Now, we made the uh, point that who or what has to be said because only in Judeo-Christian worldviews and those that emanate from them is the answer a who, except in polytheistic worldviews, there's many who's. Um, but in a pantheistic worldview or a materialistic worldview, they would answer with what is ultimately real. Now, uh, as Christians, we answer with the, the eternally existent Trinity is ultimately real, namely God. God, uh, who existed and ha who is eternal, who is outside and above time, who was and is and is to come, has eternally existed as one God in three beings, three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, perfectly existing in community as one God and one being. And so in that community of, of the oneness of God becomes the basis for all thinking, uh, which all thinking is unity and diversity, one in the many. All theological truths have counterbalancing paradoxical truths, and all heresy is the emphasizing of a truth, a truth in quotes, without its counterbalancing truths. So when, in the, the first component of any, anyone's worldview is who or what is ultimately real. And by ultimate real, reality, we mean the big questions of where did the universe come from? Where did life come from? And what, does it have a purpose? Why are we here? Uh, if you're a materialist, you believe that there is only this life. And because the Bible says that God has put eternity in man's heart, and because even sinful, blind, lost, fallen men are made in the image of God, even fallen people want to have some way of saying their life counted for more than this life. So they do that with children. They do that with legacies. They do that with endowments. Like it's a big deal if you study the history of the presidency of the United States. Presidents are concerned with their legacy and how they'll be looked at 40 years or 50 years after their presidency. When uh, there's a tragedy... And some young person uh, gets uh, killed when they're 17 or whatever. People start some organization or foundation to try, you know, maybe Mothers Against Drunk Drivers to try to say, hey, okay, my son was killed by a drunk driver, but I'm going to see to it that, he, that his life has purpose and meaning beyond the grave by 
uh, campaigning to make sure that we stop drunk driving. You know, there was a um, popular uh, television show. Uh, I always forget the guy's name. Oh, gosh. Um, but it's like America's Most Wanted. Uh, John Walsh. And that all started because his son, Adam, uh, was, a, you know, was, be, became missing, was abducted. I think it was years before they finally found that he was really dead in his body and so forth. But John Walsh started this America's Most Wanted because he wanted to basically say, hey, my son's death is going to have some meaning that lasts forever. That's in the heart of all people. And so, uh, who or what is ultimately real? Everybody has answers in their heart and mind for that question. No matter whether they can articulate them well and say, well, I'm an, I'm an evolutionist, like the majority of evolutionists would probably not be able to say that that is coming out of a religion called materialism or a religion called naturalism. That is that matter is eternal. Whereas a Christian believes that God is eternal and that he created matter ex nihilo out of nothing. So um, the first thing you need to know is when you're talking with people about the kingdom of God, about the gospel, about the lordship of Jesus Christ, about sin, death, and so forth, they have a viewpoint about who or what is ultimately real. And we're going to segue in the, tonight into the back sheet of the paper eventually. And we're going to talk about what's called epistemology, which deals with the philosophy or the idea of how do we know. So in some materialistic worldviews, uh, materialists come in uh, two kinds, atheists and agnostics. And the word A means against. An atheist, the reason there's what's called an aggressive evangelistic atheism out there, like Richard Dawkins and this sort of thing, is because men are, are not neutral. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. If they were actually truly atheists in the sense they didn't believe in a God, there would be no re philosophical reason for them to care. The reason that they're on a campaign against God is because they're against God. <laughs> And deep down in their unconscious, they know it. An agnostic is against knowledge. Gnostic is the Greek word for knowledge. And so there's two kinds of agnostics. One, and they're really about the same, but one is saying, I don't think we can know because there's so much knowledge to have. How could, and we always know in part, we're always finite. How could we know anything for sure? Now, most philosophical agnostics go one step further and would say, uh, we know that you could never know. Like the one thing I know is that there's so much facts and the universe is unfolding still and, and the, you know, the galaxies are still spinning out and so forth. You could never know enough to know anything for sure because some hidden piece of knowledge when it comes to life can overturn all the things you've thought before. So an agnostic is actually against the, it's an epistemological position. It's an, a theory of knowledge. An agnostic is saying, I know that you can never know. And that's a, it's a total logical self-contradiction. 
and uh, an agnostic is saying, uh, I absolutely dogmatically, this is the word of God. We, I know that you cannot know anything. And of course, the position is absurd. It's, it's reduced to a logical absurdity. Now, um, for the Christian, the first essential attribute or the first essential element of the gospel is the doctrine of God. Now, that is really important to know. I'd really encourage you not only to take our systematic theology class, which the second major section is on the nature and attributes of God, but I'd really encourage you to read a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, by A.W. Tozier and or the knowledge of God by A.W. Pink. But um, A.W. Tozier would probably be a good starting point to understand uh, the attributes of God because we live in a Christianity today that is incredibly man-centered and our ideas about God have become reduced. And because most young Christians are growing up in an atmosphere where, the, where God has been boxed in and reduced to be less than God, in so many ways, his sovereignty, his immutability, and so forth, is studied, people's God is too small. In essence, what codependency is, is when people are big and, you're, you're, and God is small in your heart and mind. And most Christians need to be converted to a bigger view of God. And, and the efficacy of his power. The Bible talks about how in the last days, meaning the last days of Israel and the last days of the world, double meaning there, there, that men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and covenant breakers and disobedient and so forth. Of course, this is 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But then it goes on to say they will hold to a form of godliness. He's speaking about the people of Israel rejecting Christ in his day, and it pertains to much of the church today. They'll hold to forms of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Now, very few Christians are willing to be as radical as the Bible is, uh, which is a shame. But uh, what he goes on to say is, avoid such people as this. You shouldn't even live with and fellowship with and hang out with people who have a reductionist view of God. Because it'll pull down, it'll, you'll be riddled with fears and anxieties and worries and and so forth because the God that's in your heart and mind isn't isn't who isn't God. You need a God who's sovereign, who's perfect, who's outside and above time, who had your life planned from all eternity. One of the reasons we're pro life is because we know there are no accidents. And although Satan had a uh, um, purpose to try to, uh, through Pharaoh, who was a type and foreshadowing of Satan, he tried to stop the purposes of God in his generation by killing all the males of Israel. It was the one who got away, namely Moses, who, dis who destroyed the works of the devil in his day. And although Satan and the person of Herod had a... Had a uh, wanted to stop all the prophecies of the kingdom of God and the king and the lordship of Christ and so forth and the seed of Abraham 
by killing all, uh, you know, Rachel weeping uh, for her children and she refused to be comforted, by killing all the the uh, children that were born in Bethlehem and Judea. And the, the, Judea is, is not just Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but it's the whole region. It'd be like killing all the kids born in Cincinnati, Dayton, and Lima, and, and Springfield uh, during a, because the Christ was to come from there. So Herod tried to stop the king, God's king, but God is not going to be stopped. It was the one who got away, our Lord Jesus, that did Herod in. Right? So, it, uh, who or what is ultimately real, uh, most people, and, and unfortunately, I would say that whether people are, say, Hindu, which is pantheism, or Buddhist, which is pantheism, or there's some form of polytheistic, like Norse religion, or some of the Native American religions, or Greco-Roman humanism, or whether they're uh, naturalists so that they worship man's science and man's reason and so forth, or whether they were brought up Christian, um, I, I don't actually think it's that much of an advantage to have been brought up Christian. I think when you're brought up Christian in our culture because of our reductionist views of the Bible and God, you're, you're almost just starting over when you've really come to God. Okay, now the second question is the nature of man. And notice that eight of the eight elements, the second element is the essential biblical attributes of man. Now, there are three big issues under the nature of man, as we've already talked about last week. One is man ethically predisposed. Is he basically good, basically evil, or basically a tabula rasa? Secondly, does man have innate value? All... Uh, value is always in contradistinction to some something else, and so um, it, in a uh, in a secular worldview or a humanistic or materialistic world, then what you're saying is um, man does man have value as a product of conception as an as an evolutionary being? Is man more valuable than a whale or than a threatened species? In, in many uh, places where there's mass poverty and, and starvation and lack of water and so forth, billions of dollars go into saving a species while thousands of people are starving. And when there's all kinds of atrocities all around the world, and, uh, you know, does the United Nations step in to, to stop the totalitarian genocides and so forth? Never. Like they didn't, nothing happened, you know, that no one came to the aid of uh, the people in Rwanda, et cetera, et cetera. The whole 20th century is about genocidal movements that nobody ever came to rescue them. So is man valuable? And, val uh, you know, and then lastly, are we more influenced by our heredity or our environment? And that's um, the argument in, in psychology and sociology. Is it nature or nurture? Now, what you believe about these things will determine our next thing, man and society. Now, just so we know on the nature of man, the Christian worldview is man ethically predisposed. The, and does he have innate value? 
the Christian view is that you were made in the image of God in two very, 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 very important truths that are foundational to why we do everything as Christians that we do come out of that. One is every individual human being's life has amazing value. And it is worth spending hundreds of hours rescuing a drunk out of the gutter. Now, it's also worth asking ourselves, uh, are we doing it wisely and effectively? Are we, you know, they say, uh, dis, you know, one of the aspects of, of uh, what it's called codependency is when, when you're willing to sink your own boat in the rescue attempt of others. One of the things I often do, we often meet when people are coming to the to the Lord, we have, often have people who are spending hours and hours and hours in rescuing behaviors of everyone in their life that they're not equipped to actually do any good for. They're just they're just it it just spending a lot of time keeping them away from growing in the Lord when they ought to just kind of walk away from that. There's a time for everything under the sun. Grow in the Lord, become the man or woman of God that, that they're supposed to be, and actually become equipped with the ammunition to really help people not just alleviate their messes. And like codependent people are always rescuing people and then actually become what's called their enablers. People can't persist in their addictions and their destructive behaviors and so forth without enablers in their life. And so what you really want to do is get equipped well enough to actually turn people and help people and, and, and become a life-changing force in their life. So, um, in the Christian view, man is worth valuable, and therefore man has a sense of justice and a sense of good. We have the law of God, as Romans points out, written on our conscience, but there's also this force called sin, and sin is an actual power in the universe, every bit as powerful as demonic spirits or Satan, and more so. It's actually the power that is that is brought death and corruption into all the world. When man fell, it wasn't just Adam and Eve who fell, but the entire creation was subject to futility, that is to corruption, that is to, to death and decay. And so um, everything in the creation, you know, bad mutations started to happen. It's probably where mosquitoes came from. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, everything in the, in the creation became subject to death and decay. And the, it's the, called the law of sin and death, and it's also the second law of thermodynamics. All matter breaks down into less harnessable forms, and no life, no life in the entire planet of any kind isn't subject to death. From, the, from little single-celled organisms, which we now know are you know, are way more complex than the Darwinist thought. To, to mankind, to whales, to, to porpoises, to spiders, they all die. Sometimes spiders die when you squish them. But uh, <laughs> um, don't tell the PETA people you stepped on a spider. <laughs> so because, is, because in a humanistic worldview, that spider is more valuable than you or, or could be equally valued than you. Whereas in a biblical view, God's human beings are, are the crown of God's creation. We were called to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and rule it. And part of our dominion mandate is to preserve species. 
that's one place we can agree with the agenda, you know, I believe we should save species. But the truth is there's been thousands and thousands of species that have gone extinct since the creation, and they continue to do so all the time. And uh, I'm all for saving species, but I'm all for saving babies, is more importantly. So with the Christian view that man has a purpose, there's a second doctrine, that, or that man has value. The second doctrine is man has purpose. You were called to an amazing purpose, and that purpose is eternal. And even sinful men sense in their heart that I should be doing something that's of ultimate importance, that's like better than being a Jedi warrior or, you know, a ninja turtle or whatever, a superhero. Like I am called to be some kind of superhero because every person is called to be a superman because Christ was, is, is the, the one and only real superman. And we are called to become his followers and bear fruit for eternity. The stakes we're living for are heaven and hell, death and life, the knowledge of God versus, versus futility for every person. And there is no purpose to living apart from knowing the Lord. People who don't know the Lord are very much like the current popular zombie movement. They, are, they walk around, but they're really dead. And part of the reason there's such appeal to the zombie thing is people know unconsciously deep down that that's actually what life outside of Christ is. It's, you know, it's some form of coping and living and, and, and because the Bible talks about how man, God has put the fear of death into every man's heart and people know deep down in their spirit that if they died outside of God, it would be horrible. And they try to avoid death. The problem is they also have this power inside themselves called sin. And the Proverbs say that those who hate wisdom, which is Christ, the Bible makes it clear that in Christ are hidden all the secrets of wisdom and knowledge. Those who hate wisdom love death. So every person who doesn't know Christ is living in a terrible conflict inside themselves every day being tormented by it because the, the sin power within them seeks death. And the call of God within them seeks to stay alive and knows that the, that the fear of death is because they know that something isn't going to be right on the other side of death. They know deep down they're not just worm food. And so they live in a terrible, conflicted torment every moment of every day because deep down they know their life should have purpose. And there's an outworking of that whole conflict called boredom. And boredom is God's gift to the lost to help them begin to see they're not living for God. Because if you're bored, you haven't found the Lord yet. If you really find the Lord and really surrender to the full call of God on your life, you will never have time to be bored again. You won't be ruled by worries and fears and anxieties because life will be an adventure. Jesus is saying to everyone, like he said to Peter, come out on the water with me. 
And every person deep inside has a supernatural need to meet God in the spirit and to walk on the water uh, with by the power of God, to live a life that's beyond human understanding and beyond short-term goals. And as God begins to capture your being, you will become an on-fire, passionate, zealous person who no one has to say, study your Bible and learn theology and learn church history, and you won't say, well, I wasn't, didn't grow up much of a reader of books. You'll change. Because you'll want to know all that you can and understand all that you can for the sake of joining the army of God. And you won't have any temptation to join some shallow ISIS or U.S. Marine Corps or any other worldly army. You'll join the army of God. And you'll enroll in the greatest adventure of all time. And you'll never have time to be aboard again. In fact, you, a Christian should have uh, to, to, to stay very godly and disciplined to, to get enough sleep at night because you should always be, as a Christian, a little bit conflicted with, there's more that I could do. <laughs> it's hard to get to bed because, you know, like Christians who sleep too much, it's a sign that God has, that they haven't come to know the Lord yet, really. They just know about the Lord. They haven't experienced him because when you experience him, Life is the ultimate adventure. I can remember before I was a Christian the horrible feeling as a as a young man as a boy of going. You know, there I'd be in the you know watching TV or some such worthless thing, and I'd say there must be something to do. And then I'd go, well, I'll go shoot some hoops, or I'll go out and throw a ball up in the air and hit it, and you know. And then no matter what I thought of, I'd go, nah, that's not it. I could tell it, that's not, there's something deeper I'm longing for. Something more important than shooting some hoops. That's kind of like, that's why the whole worldly system and Satan goes after, like getting you captured in too many video games and TV and so forth. Because they're in the boredom killing business. And they're trying to make sure that you don't think too much about what boredom really is. And as long as you can keep medicating the boredom with another video game or another uh, drug or another, you know, smoke some more weed or, or go to another party or watch another movie or watch more TV or whatever, you can try to, try to not consciously fellowship the boredom but the boredom is God's gift to you to say things aren't right with you and God yet and that all comes out of the doctrine of the nature of man you were created for the most amazing purpose and it's going to take all the seeking God and all the studying and all the meditating on God's word and all the embracing of tough things and and, and, you know, you want, if, you, I, if you're going to become the call of God on your life, you're going to have to learn how to eat problems for breakfast. What are you having this morning? I'm having problems. I'm going to eat 
you know, I'm taking my sin nature to the cross and I'm crying out for grace and I'm getting repositioned in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. I've been so forth and I'm getting equipped and, and trained so I can go. My, he's training my hands for war. I'm going to battle today. And I'm going to put on the armor of God and I'm going to team up with the other members of the army and we're going to go out and kick some demons' butts and and uh, break some bonds of wickedness and set some captives free. And it's going to be dangerous. There's temptations and there's opposition and there's people who are going to hate you. Your, your very own Lord, they had to kill him. And he said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me. You can tell you're zeroing in for God because when you follow God fully, you should always be growing in the fact that there are some people who will join with you. There should always be a, an, an increasing number of people who are doing that. There will be some people who respect you but don't join with you. And then there will be people who outright hate you. And, and it should grow into the fact that they hate the people you're associated with too. <laughs> And unfortunately, if you study this out biblically, you'll find it be true that that it's it's usually the people of God that, unfortunately, that God uses to test you. They'll be the ones that hate you, the people who ought to love you. And that's one of the great disappointments in the young Christian life when you finally realize, wow, people who go to church and claim to be Christian and so forth, they really hate what I'm doing now because... <laughs> Because it's, you know, that's why it, Galatians talks about how Hagar in the son of the bondwoman persecuted Isaac, the son of the free woman and the son of promise. Because it's always the last moves of God that persecute most vehemently the new move of God. And the people who've, who've fallen off the track to become Pharisees and and religious and so forth, they always hate the people who are in the liberty of the sons of God and filled with the spirit of God and moving forward in God's purposes. That's all through the Bible. That's why when the apostles were going, left Jerusalem and planted churches in Antioch and so forth, the Judaizers, as they're called in the New Testament, sent people to follow Paul and Barnabas and, and tried to create riots and tried to create to stop them. If you don't have some Christians that dislike you, you're probably not walking with God. Now, I don't think we need to be obnoxious and go out and try to just offend people, but the gospel is offensive. And if you love people, you'll risk their rejection by speaking the truth in love to them. And if they don't want to hear what God has to say to them, they'll be mad at you. And love requires that. So one of the great adventures of being a Christian is God takes, I, takes the shyest, fearful people and puts them full of boldness because if you love people, you're going to have to confront them. It's as simple as that. I was so, all I, 
I didn't, wouldn't have admitted this to myself. I could only see this after I came to Christ and I looked back. But I was all about being a people pleaser. I liked being in the cool set and hanging out with the cool kids. And, you know, however shallow that can be. It was, it's disgusting. It's shallow. Woe are you if all men speak well of you, right? That was what I was all about. I liked having my highs and smoking weed all day long, every day, and trying to see if I could get, you know, past 30 or 40 joints in a day, up to 50 or 60. And, you know, being hanging out with the cool people and, and you know, being one of the bad guys, which was, you know, in the world, like the bad people are the good people. <laughs> Hang out with some brothers that are really bad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and... Uh, you know, and it's all death, and it's all shallow, and it's all worthless. Uh, but that's where, that's where men are at. So again, being made in the image of God get, means you you have a sense of justice, but it's twisted. You have a you have a call of God on your life that's ultimate, and the world, the flesh, and the devil are always trying to get you to 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 to, to strain that out. And fill your life with other things. That's why people drink beer a lot. And I'm all for drinking beer a, a little. <laughs> you know, but the reason people have to be inebriated and they have to get high and they have to watch a lot of video things and, and play video games is they've got to, to tr they're constantly trying to avoid reality. That's the condition of sinful man. And there's a power called sin. And you, it's not impossible, uh, or it's not difficult to overcome, it's impossible. You have to be rescued from it. And that's why I'm, I'm on a campaign that now that I, I'm going to try to eliminate this from my vocabulary. I hope that it'll catch on through all Grace Christian Fellowship. But I'm going to quit calling Jesus my Savior because we have so made that connotation of a mishy-mashy, like, yeah, I asked Jesus to come into my life, by which I mean sit in the back seat and don't have any opinions. I'm going to still be Lord, and I'm driving, and, of course, that means I'm going to wreck a lot. So when I do, I'll cry out to you to, to save me from the consequences of my sin. But I'm not really going to, I'm not going to really let you drive. And you can come in the house as long as you keep your opinions to a minion. You, I don't mind if you dust a little bit. But don't even think about, like, rebuilding the house from the ground up. That's what the Christianity we have today means. And that's what we mean by Jesus is my personal Savior. We mean he's my Aladdin's lamp. And I say, I believe, I believe, I believe, and pray for magic, to, for God to rescue me from the consequences of, of my sins. And, and that's why... You know, I'm. You know, I'll call a. I'll go to church or call a pastor and so forth. Whenever I screw up enough that I, and I'll call out to God and and I'll pray when things are really bad. <laughs> and that's how most Christians are relating to God in our culture. Is their their personal butler? You know, there's a psalm that says he's a buckler, and people have changed that to he's a butler, and they've taken the word you know that we're supposed to buffet our body and they've made it we're supposed to buffet our body and uh, you know it's uh you know we've changed it all 
All right, so enough on that. Now, that second thing leads to man in society. In other words, how are we supposed to live? And the Bible's answer is in Exodus chapter 5, chapter 20, I'm sorry, and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy means second law, second giving of the law, because the law is restated in the book of Deuteronomy word for word from Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy 5. And the law, as Paul says in Romans, contains the embodiment of the truth. The law is reality. God judges or afflicts families, people, nations on their obedience or disobedience to his law. And when you are under the power of sin, when you do not know Christ, you are a lawbreaker. As 1 John says, sin is lawlessness. And so, you know, you're a Christian, but you don't really give 10% of your gross income to the church you go to because you're, you haven't really submitted to the law of God. But the Bible says, thou shall not steal. Guess what that applies? You know, thou shall not steal tells us several things. One is that God endorses private property and free enterprise. So that's a, that's a society. Most economic systems are not built on Judeo-Christian free enterprise, but state-planned economies. That's why there's such a big gap between gross and net on your paycheck. And every 16-year-old gets their first job at Arby's, and they look at the gross, and they look at the net, and then they start to cry. In the... And it's like, well, quit voting for a socialist. <laughs> so, uh, well, of course. Uh, you know, the, you know, thou shalt not steal applies to everything. It means people steal. Guess who steals? Employers Steal from their employees. And when you don't work as unto the Lord in the most wise and efficient way you can, you're stealing from your employer. When you get staying around with the other employees and talk about how bad the boss is or bad the company is or whatever, anybody can do that. Be the, be the change you want to see. I remember when I learned some of these lessons the hard way. I was just out of college, and I'd only been a Christian like four years. And I was working in a factory saving money for grad school for one year. And I was running a thing called a seam welder. And the union had all these, they had time study guys who were non-union. And they would fight. They had like a whole arbitrating system between the time study guys and the union guys. And so uh, the union, the time study guys would say, you ought to be able to run 11 to 12 pieces an hour on this machine. And so they, the union had negotiated a contract that they had to only do 70% of what the maximum efficiency was. <laughs> you know, of course, the, in the, the whole idea of a corporation is if you, if you make your employer less profitable, 
you're actually shooting your own job in the foot. But nobody gets that anymore because of our incredible blind selfishness. So, uh, the, you know, the employers, a biblical view of being an employer is you're supposed to be in business for your customers and to bless your employees. And if you do well by them, you'll profit as a result. And a biblical view of an employee is supposed to be if we make the best products and services for our customers and bless the owner of the company, then we will build the company and we'll have better jobs and better raises. And we can rise up and have hire more people to do those the stump grinding that we don't want to do or whatever. Or maybe, you know. And uh, you know, but everything is so selfish. And thou shalt not steal means you shouldn't rob God. Some people have a lot of problems in their life that are connected with the fact that they don't have enough faith to tithe to their local church. The government steals. It's called taxation. That's not, there's no biblical uh, precedence for, t- for taxing income. The very first American Supreme Court case back in a time when we had more free enterprise Mar- was called Marbury versus Madison. In, the, in uh, John Marshall and J- Joseph Story, the chief justice and his main theologian, philosopher, opinion writer, Joseph Story, said that the power to tax is the power to destroy. The reason you can't tax a church is because if you can tax a church, then you can destroy the church. When you have to pay an income tax, which didn't happen, of course, until 1913 or 14, when you have to pay an income tax, the government is saying you're a slave and we own you and we're going to, you're now a sharecropper and you get this percentage of what you make. And they got it in the door by saying we're only going to raise it, it's only going to be 1% and it'll only be on the very rich. Now listen to that we're about to have a presidential election and they'll say, we need to raise taxes on the very rich. And then somehow that always translates into if you work at McDonald's, you're the very rich. Because we're going to continue to penalize anybody who works and, and so forth so we can become the enablers for everybody who doesn't want to work. Now, I don't want to get into politics and, and, and all that, but freedom is a seamless garment. Freedom of religion and freedom of enterprise, etc. All of them are related. And there can only be true freedom in Jesus Christ. The reason you can't go over to Iraq and set a non a, a, a country with a, without a Judeo-Christian heritage free and expect them to stay free is because freedom is a, is a value that comes out of knowing Jesus Christ. And so no matter, you know, you take, you take Russia and when the, when the, you know, the democratic Repo, you know, gov- um, revolution of, of March and April of 1917 gave way, could, they could only keep that freedom for six months until the Bolsheviks took over in the October revolution because all they'd ever known is a totalitarian czar and all they had was a kind of Eastern Orthodoxy that doesn't, that is missing some very major points of Christianity, and it and it uh, doesn't understand the the relationship between the state and the church. And so, wherever you've had Eastern Orthodoxy, you've had a state-run or situation. So you can't go over, you know, 
Ronald Reagan, God bless him, and, and Pope John Paul II, uh, there's a book about this, if you want to read it, by Woodward and Bernstein, the same guys who brought down Nixon and all the president's men. They wrote a book that basically uh, uncovered documents and so forth that proved that John Paul II and Ronald Reagan set out to bring down the Soviet Union and to set it free, and they achieved that a couple years after his presidency, but they put the things in motion that did it, and they worked behind the scenes together to bring it down, but the Russians became a totalitarian government under Putin again within like 10 years. Because you can only keep freedom. If, like, the reason our country is losing freedom is because our country is becoming more and more ungodly. And if you want to see a, the gap between your gross and your net cl gets smaller, you got to start tithing. Because you cannot rob God. If you break the laws of God, God will break you. We had the sexual revolution of the 60s which gave rise to the, to, the, to the adultery revolution and the, and the divorce revolution. And we have the, a broken society to show it. Well, almost everyone is growing up in bad homes and bad circumstances. And it grew from 8 or 10 or 12% of ki kids growing up in ungodly bad homes that were damaging to them to like over 70% over of African-American kids grow up with, with only one parent in the home around 70% of African-American kids are born outside of wedlock. In the Caucasian population, it's approaching 40%. And, um, and that's why I was, uh, my daughter's reading a book by Jason Wright, really a, a, a black think tank guy, and, and it's called Please Stop Helping Us. Because when the government steals from the people to give to the to redistribute wealth when it's a Robin Hood theology, it actually makes the poor people poor, more poor. Because you steal, you, you get more of whatever you incentivize. I can tell you if we said we're going to stop having people tithe to our church and we're going to give you 10% when you come, we'd grow really fast. Now, but whether we'd be actually doing any good for the people, that would be another issue. Whether we'd actually be harming them, because that's been kind of the modern approach, is let's, let's water it down and water it down, sugarcoat it, and, and get less and less of the reality and truth in it, because the gospel is offensive. All right, so that's man in society. Now, we're going to talk about epistemology, but I want to teach you one other thing about man and society first. And that is, again, humanists see everything the opposite of Christians. And um, we might as well face it that the two worldviews that are most common in the world today is because of the, the ascendancy of Western, uh, the Western world, like communism, Karl Marx says, is a humanism. So what was once an Eastern country, communist China, is now completely Western philosophy in the state. And so um, there's a guy who hopefully sometime you'll read George Gilder's Wealth and Poverty. That's probably more accessible than Max Weber's um, The Protestant Work Ethic. But 
the West became prosperous because of, because of the values of the Reformation. And then evangelicalism came and started chipping away at those values, and, and the West is declining. Once Europe was called Christendom, now less than 4% are Christians in Europe. And most people estimate 1% to 2% are actual Christians, and, and more, the majority of the few Christians there are are nominally Christian, Christian in form but not in content. In America today, around 4% of people under 30 years old actually attend a church. And we will be Europe in 20 years if we don't take a different approach to Christianity. So, um, you know, the two competing worldviews are humanism or naturalism or materialism and Christian. But what we need is a restored real Christianity. Now, here's something that you should memorize. Uh, you've got to know this. You know, I'm, I, you can't be a worship leader in our church. You can't be a home group leader. You can't be a campus ministry leader if you can't rattle this off out in a moment's notice. There are seven inevitable, think about what the words mean, institutions of government and the kingdom of God is about who's going to govern ever since the fall of man planet earth is a war between the city of man and the city of God the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ uh, hopefully someday if you're in a mood to read a really good 350-page book of theology, read N.T. Wright's How Jesus Became King. Or it might be called How God Became King. It's a study of the four Gospels and with an emphasis on the kingdom. And Colossians, Paul says what happens at conversion, what should happen is you are transferred out of the domain of darkness. Domain is a kingdom word. Before you come to Christ, you're in bondage to fears and worries and inner pain and, and addictions and, and being miserly and not being generous. And, and you're worried about you, me, me, me. When will this happen for me? And so forth. When you become set free from the domain of darkness, you're transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son and Jesus becomes our king together. It's called the church and our king individually. And we live in such a way as to understand that our king knows all things, sees all things. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough problems of its own. If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, when we really make Jesus Lord, you know who you're supposed to marry will come. God will bring your Eve or your Adam, depending on what, you know, if you're an Eve or an Adam to begin with. When, uh, when you, what you need to do is seek the Lord, walk with God, be fruitful, uh, cultivate the garden, and meet the, you know, that's why Jesus, after the resurrection, he was the gardener. Adam was the gardener, and he's the second Adam, and he's gardening when, you know, when, uh, the women found him. He, they thought he was the gardener. Why? Because he was gardening. And he was uh, the second Adam. And uh, 
God said, you know what? Adam's doing all I've called him to do, and there's not a helpmate corresponding to him. So God will create your wife if he, if he needs to. And the fact is, if you're a woman, he's already creating your Adam, and he knows how and when to, to bring him. And there's, you can't fret or worry about a single thing because you're not even capable of making one hair of your head white or black. I guess with uh, just for men, beard and dyes and stuff, you maybe can. I'm not even capable of growing any hair. <laughs> so why worry? What I need to be about is I, I need to become, by my relationship with Jesus Christ, a person that if someone says, what are you doing? He said to his parents, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Didn't you know I was involved in the things of my father? How could you be worried about me? Don't you remember when the angel spoke to you and said that you'll, don't you remember you conceived when you uh, were a virgin? Don't you remember the incredible wisdom I had growing up? Are you really, you're really worried for me? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I love you. I respect you. I'll continue in subjection for you. But don't forget, I made you. <laughs> Well, you didn't make her. You're not Jesus. <laughs> so uh, so she doesn't have to remember that. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So we are about bringing the kingdom of God to this earth. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in Christ. And he said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, know that the kingdom of God is among you. Wherever God's Spirit is advancing the gospel, true conversion, true discipleship, true community of the king, restoring the church, creating zealous warriors for God, working in concert together and, and planning. To, you, if you're not in a church that's planning to take over the world, get a, bigger, get a better church. You know, you can share the gospel by saying, like, uh, Jesus is the king. Do you want to surrender now? <laughs> you know, like, whose side are you going to be on? He's offering you amnesty. He's offering you reconciliation. He's, he wants you to enlist in his army. And the only thing is he doesn't just offer six-year terms. You have to exchange your life for his life. And he'll fill in the contract as you go. It's already in the Bible. As you continue to grow, you'll understand the contract better. <laughs> That's actually how my original Search the Scripture series, I actually used that uh uh, you know, the, the U.S. Army wants you. and I mean, like God wants you to search the scriptures. And uh, so um, I did. I had a picture of Uncle Sam at the top of the, each, of the page each time. All right. So now with that understanding, the war is a clash of kingdoms. That's what the world is. And guess what? There's no neutral zone. 
There's no place, you know, like in, in World War I, if you were in the trenches, if you stood up tall, you got your head shot off. You know, there's no place that you can leave the battle. You live in a, in a war zone. But our general has already won. In essence, um, D-Day, if you study World War II, after that, the war was over, although the fighting continued for another year and a half or so. But Joseph Stalin, being a, the satanic figure he was, and Franklin Roosevelt, being the fool that he was, was convinced by Stalin to wait to hold up the American advance on Germany so that they could meet in Berlin when we could have actually been all the way to the Ukraine by the time the Russians got there if we wanted and we wouldn't have given Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and so forth over to the communist. But Franklin Roosevelt was so enthralled with what a great guy Joseph Stalin was and you know, just about worshipped him. And Churchill said, you're being a fool, Roosevelt. You're being a fool. He's a communist. He, they, when they, if you allow them to get to Germany, they'll hold, they'll hold those nations captive and they won't set them free. And they'll enslave them under their communist philosophy and their totalitarian ways. Churchill knew that. Anybody who understood Judeo-Christian freedom would know that. But Roosevelt was a socialist. He was a fool. Churchill actually didn't want to invade from France. He wanted to invade from Greek and the Balkans and go up through uh, Eastern Europe and knock the Russians out of the war and win it without them so that the Eastern European nations could stay free. Well, fortunately, 45 or 50 years later, they became free, and probably in another 100 years or so, they'll overcome all the poverty and destruction that that totalitarian government brought them. Maybe. Now, all that's to say is that the truth of the matter was is once we took the beaches of Normandy, it was a done deal. The rest is a mop-up operation. And that's exactly what happened in the resurrection, the ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. All the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. This will not happen after the second coming of Christ. This will continue to progress and happen until Christ comes back to a kingdom prepared for himself. There will be worshipers of God that are restored to a biblical, true Christianity in every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And the issue of your life is, are you going to get with the people that, that are going to get in on it or not? Or are you going to sit back and play video games? That's the real issue. And despite the fact that... that Ever since the 1890s, the so-called Bible-believing Christians who bought a concept called dispensational premillennialism that we studied, will study in the Kingdom of God series. And, uh, despite the fact that they predict, have been predicting the church is going to shrink and the Antichrist is going to get bigger and bigger and the world's going to get bigger, and it's not happening. It's happening to where, to, in America, yes, in Western Europe, because as Acts 17 says, God has appointed the nations and their times and their boundaries. But guess what? Ever since that doctrine came, the, the continent of Africa has gone from 3 million Christians to 315 million Christians. There's an average of, a new, of over a million people a year coming to Christ in the continent of Africa. 
and that's been sustained for 115 years. 30,000 people a day come to Christ in communist China. For the first time ever, the time is ripe and and Christianity is starting to grow in India. And that's why I can't wait to get to Hyderabad and plant a church because that will grow in a generation or two to churches throughout throughout Andhra Pradesh and Telangana. And there will be 100 churches by the time Anvesh is old and gray. 20 minutes left? Well, we'll go past 80 minutes tonight. Well, what the heck? All right, so let's get into this. Maybe we won't get to epistemology tonight, but we will get to the seven inevitable institutions of the kingdom of God. Do you understand that it's a kingdom issue? It's whose side are you on? And your, you know, how you spend your days, how you spend your money, how you spend your prayers, it all, is, it all tells you whose side you're really on. I've always thought it was a little funny if Christians only give like 10% or so of their money to the Lord. I've always given 20, 30, 40%. And then I've always had, you know, as you can tell, one, uh, one particular friend I have, friend in quotes, that's a very successful businessman in Springfield, whenever I get together with him for lunch, he likes to say, well, I can see you've been eating well. <laughs> and, well, you know, like David said, I've been young and I've been old but I have not seen the Lord's servants for, forsaken nor his children begging for bread. Uh, you, know, I, you know what? What do you need? I got a house that the roof doesn't leak. I got air conditioning in the attic. And I got two air conditioners. <laughs> you know, I got two central air conditioners in my weird system. You know, I got a flooded basement. <laughs> no. uh, you know, I got, I got three freezers full of soups that I make, <laughs> and I, you know, honestly, you know, um, I'm not, not bragging or something, it's in, but it's interesting. At one point, my wife and I had invested $250,000 of our own money uh, in this church, and when Catherine's father died, we inherited $250,000. God paid us back every dime that we had given to him, and we never, never even knew it. And my father-in-law used to say back in 2004, you better hope I die in 2010. We suspect some times that he planned it because he died in 2010, and it just so happened that the Democrats and the, and the Republicans, out of fighting as they do, they couldn't agree on a new inheritance tax laws, and so they finally agreed, but it but they ran out at the end of 2009 and they started in 2011 and whoever died in 2010 got, got to not have the government steal their lifetime's work. They got to give all their money to their kids. And, you know, when we were at his 90th birthday party in 2009, we all were thinking, man, he's in such good shape. He goes to, the, he went to this workout place three and four times a week and lifted weights and did the elliptical machine still at the age of 90 and he'd walk all the way to the hospital nearby because every morning because he didn't like to cook for himself because they had oatmeal. And then he'd walk back again because they had a salad bar at lunch. And uh, then he'd usually go out to like Bob Evans at dinner or something. And I really was thinking like, wow, I'll bet we're going to be having a 100th birthday party. <laughs> He's doing great. Well, unfortunately, he got sick early in 2010 and died in a few months. And, you know, but God is sovereign. 
Uh, my one daughter got to pray with him to receive Christ and led him to the Lord in the last few weeks of his life. And, and his, uh, he struggled with his faith all his life because he was in a liberal Episcopalian church that taught that, you know, these things didn't really happen. And, and, he, and he came to believe they did. And I believe that he's with the Lord. And God paid us back every dime we invested. You can't outgive God. Not time or money or any other thing. If you decide to stay single for the Lord, the Lord will probably give you eight. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was just a joke. <laughs> eight husbands. <laughs> no, no, you don't even want one is trouble enough. As as Paul says, in this world you'll have trouble. I'm trying to spare you. <laughs> See, all right, so let's get into these so we have enough time to cover the seven. These are inevitable. In every place you go, these seven institutions exist. The self-government of a man, Christian man or woman. Self-government of a man or woman. Self-government is the first inevitable institution. I'm going to list them first, then we'll go back and explain them. Uh, we'll probably have to go past 80 minutes, but oh well. Uh, number two is the family. Now, biblically, there's not just the nuclear family, but there's extended family. That's another whole issue. Number three is religious institutions, which in a biblical worldview is the church. But all cultures have religious institutions, even secular ones. Number four is educational systems. All cultures have various ways of educating the young. It's inevitable. You, these are, in the, again, think of the words I said, the seven inevitable institutions. There's, you can go back and study ancient Greece. You can study uh, tribalism in Africa. You can study the Native Americans. You can study uh, Thailand or, or Japan. All cultures have these things. And the goal of Christianity is to redeem these for Christ, to bring them under the lordship of his kingdom. Now, the fourth thing, again, is educational systems. Fifthly, is vocational or economic systems. Every, God created a, a rule that came, that, that got exasperated by the fall of man. That's why when God cursed the ground, what he was saying is there's a biblical principle and is the first principle you study in economics called scarcity. There's not an unlimited amount of goods and services. We are always dealing with a scarce amount of resources. Sixthly, is the media and social mores. We become a very media-oriented culture the more ungodly we've gotten because the more ungodly people get, the more they try to kill their boredom with more and more entertainment because they're trying to avoid thinking about reality. And lastly is civil government. Now, let's go through the seven a little bit and contrast 
a biblical way of thinking about them versus a humanistic, materialist, statist worldview. In general, the Bible puts the emphasis on the order that I gave them, one through seven, and a non-Christian, a humanistic person, puts the order on seven through one. So we are a conflict with the world in the very beginning. The Christians want, like in the Roman Empire, Jesus, there was a conflict between Jesus, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Guess what the title for Caesar was, starting in about 44 BC, uh, when when the Roman, what was called the Roman Republic, was replaced by Julius Caesar and the Roman Emperor and Empire, and over the from 44 BC to around 30 or so AD, coinciding with the time of Christ, God ordained this uh, from all eternity. The cult of emperor worship grew, and the the emperor was called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the you had to say when you met uh, people on the street, they could say Caesar is Lord, and you had to respond with Caesar is Lord. And the Christians wouldn't do that. So they were killed. What's scary today is both the Republicans and the Democrats think that uh, the state should be Lord and the liberal, what's called the uh, mainstream liberal Protestant movement and most Catholics are in favor of the Democrats in a more status, planned, socialistic economy. And the Republicans are also in favor of a status, planned economy, but they're in favor of it growing more slowly. And neither is a biblical point of view, and both of them are thoroughly anti-Christ. And, and um, the conservative Christians, as a general rule, are in league with the Republicans, and the liberal Christians, as a general rule, are in league with the Democrats. And both of them are anti-Christ to the core. In essence, the conservative Christians are mostly in, uh, embracing the worldview of the Pharisees, and the liberal Christians are embracing the worldview of the Sadducees and the Herodotians and the the conservative Christians also some conservative Christians embrace more the 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 what ideas of the zealots and there's some different we won't get into that tonight but we basically have those same ideas in our culture and most conservative Christians either embrace the ideas of the Pharisees or the zealots and most liberal Christians embrace the ideas of the Sadducees and the Herodians. And all four of those groups were opposed to Jesus and still are. That's why I believe Jesus would be crucified by most churches he would visit today. That have the name Christian on their sign. And still have some Christian symbolism around the place, a few crosses or whatever. And but uh, but they've long since left left the philosophical message of the kingdom of God. So let's go through these. But again, in general, Christians would want to increase governments one, two, and three, and decrease governments seven and six. 
and they would want the state to quit planning governments four and five and want people free to to uh, in governments four and five. So let's see how that works out in practical. Number one, the self-government of a Christian man or woman. Again, we already talked about Colossians 1 says, you are held captive by Satan to do his will. Before you come to Christ, you cannot govern yourself. That's why when Paul's talking to King Agrippa and King Felix, he talks about the mystery of the kingdom of God, and, the, and he talks about the mystery of self-control. Now, there are many non-believers, even Buddhist and humanists both, who can be self-controlled to various levels for selfish reasons. So unfortunately, some Buddhist and some humanists are more disciplined than lots of Christians, which is a very sad state of affairs. However, they can't do it for the glory of God. And they're doing what the Bible calls dead works. So if your reason for being disciplined is so you can be more famous or you can uh, make more money or you can have more power or the illusion of power in, in government or whatever, then all of that is against the kingdom of Christ. And true self-government begins when Jesus comes in and he says, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. The Bible says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And the Bible's view of freedom is that you receive a new heart and that new heart grows in the power of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit to be free to do that which you were created to be in the first place. And the reason you have peace, joy, love, all the fruits of the Spirit, self-control, you know, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The reason you're growing in these things at all times is because his government is coming deeper into your life. And one of the things, there's a great book you should read by Diane West called The, the Death of the Grown-Up. But what's happening in our culture is people are arriving at self-government later and later. Because, you know, when, when the welfare state takes care of you or, or parents ought to become your enablers or whatever, you still need your mommy or daddy to wake you up so you can be to school on time. Uh, when you're in high school, that's a problem. You know, like I always told my boys when they were little, when it's not only when you take out the trash on Wednesday nights, but when you don't need someone to remind you that it's trash night and you tell me it's trash night, I'll know you're growing in self-government. When you don't need someone to sit down with you and help you get your homework done, or someone to teach you how to use a schedule book in a planner and make goals and review them every morning and review them every night and work your plan, then I'll know you're starting to be set free by Jesus Christ. And I always say this in my classes at Sinclair, you're probably starting to grow a little bit in self-government if your mommy didn't have to help you wake up to get here today. We're just, uh, just going to have to do two CDs. But, um, or if you, ha if you could dress yourself, 
you know, my sister gave me a great idea. Like all of our kids, when they were in third grade, started to do their own laundry. One of the most common things that's happening in the evangelical circles today is because we see the world as getting worse and worse and worse, and we're so afraid, and we raise our kids full of fears. We uh, do all this stuff for them to try to compensate. And we're like, here, there, we got, in our house, we have two laundry rooms. We have two washers, three dryers. Figure it out. There's soap, fabric softener, and uh, there's instructions. <laughs> Hope you'll enjoy doing your laundry because when you start to do your laundry or mow the lawn or whatever, you have to start to problem solve and you start growing in a sense of competency and you begin to say, don't bother helping me anymore, dad. I got this. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons I, uh, one of my uh, most important aspects of our kids' house vision is I want to have something that's kind of a, a marriage between Awana, Royal Rangers, and Boy Scouts. Uh, and I, uh, because A, inner city kids need to get out in the wilderness and they need to learn how to pitch a tent and they need to learn how to make a fire and they need to learn how to go out and kill their dinner and, and uh, bring it back. No. And, uh, um, but no, they need merit badges. And they need to be thoroughly indoctrinated in the fact that God loves you and he's called you into his kingdom with or without merit badges. And you don't do them because of that, but because he loves you, he wants to give you a more abundant life. And that part of that more abundant life is getting a momentum of achievements. And the the younger they start getting this momentum of achievements, the faster they grow up. And that's why we have people that are still living at home when they're 28 and 35 and 40 and, and they live in the basement and smoke weed all day and so forth. And they haven't graduated from college and, you know, they can't do their own laundry yet. And their mommy still makes their peanut butter and jelly toast and uh, so forth. And that you, because, because we, we have actually kind of embraced a philosophy in evangelicalism of avoiding growing up. You know, like we, like my kids, by the time they were 14, they all knew how to have a job and they all knew how to manage money. And they all were required to tithe to the church by the time they were 10. And they knew how to make money. And I didn't have any kids that didn't have a job at the age of 14. And they were tithing, and they we made a deal, like, after 14, uh, you can still live at the house. We'll still pay your Christian school as long as you have at least a three-point average. And we gradually raised that to a 3.5 because we found out three-point wasn't uh, enough of a standard. In the... And, you, and we'll still stock the refrigerator with food, but if you want to go to Starbucks, you're on your own. If you want to if you want to wear clothes, you're on your own. <laughs> we didn't buy him any clothes or anything. Or if you want to go to the movies, that's your choice because you start learning how to manage money by managing a little money and having a part-time job and having a few spheres of life that you're responsible for. They weren't responsible for their rent or their board or their school. But they were responsible for everything else after the age of 14. We didn't buy them, give them gas money. or Now we did because we started the church and we had the business. Then we had like, 
we would, you know, they, we had bargains. Like if you do this, this, and this, and this, then you get gas money. <laughs> and uh, Stephen knows that economy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, but that's called self-government. And you want to help, if you're a Christian parent, and, and that's really what we want to do with Kids Rock House. The, one of the most characteristic things of the culture of inner city poverty is it's actually a culture. Poverty is part of the fallen world. Poverty is part of Satan and his kingdom and his demons. And it doesn't have a work ethic and it's not creative and it's not frugal and it doesn't save. And it doesn't say, okay, you know, the reason I wanted my kids to work at McDonald's and and Carla worked at Pizza Hut, I think, and et cetera, when they were 14, was because uh, I wanted them to see that, boy, this Pizza Hut check doesn't go very far. I better start learning some skills that'll pay a lot more money. Because I, I, it's like, it's up to you. You can be stuck making nine or $12 an hour, or you can develop uh, the plan to make Forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty dollars an hour. Let me believe. Let me just tell you, like when you make a hundred thousand a year as like a programmer or something, it's a lot easier to make ends meet than it is on nine dollars an hour. Even if you're not that great of a financial manager, <laughs> and you know, tithing is not the only Christian principle. There, frugality, industry, creativity. Etc. Understanding how economics really works, and you know, becoming a person that people got to have because you're the best worker there. Secondly, is of course the family. Now we live in a time when a, uh, approximately 65 to 85 percent of evangelical Christians have sex and believe it's okay to have sex before they're married. But like Jason Riley, a, a black uh, think tank guy, points out, he says, we don't need a program to stop poverty. Do you know that among black couples that have a husband and a wife that are still the original ones with children, less than 8% are, are, under, are uh, under the poverty line? 92% of black people that are still married are above the poverty line. There's your end poverty program, as he says. So the family, the reason that, you know, you can't commit adultery, the reason you can't marry someone outside of Christ and then be bound together with unbelievers, the reason why uh, you have to marry someone more mature and more zealous and more complete in Christ, so one of you has to trick the other one into believing you're... <laughs> That's my old joke. The reason you need that is because you need the favor of God and the glory of God resting on your whole marriage. And you need to raise children like, like a plurality of elders raises a church, consulting together with the husband being the senior minister. But any husband that isn't consulting his wife on how, and they're not doing this together, I pity the fool, as Mr. T says. So the family, now, in a, in a biblical world, the family should include uh, extended family. But because the world has fallen, God has created the next institution, the church. 
But as Jesus pointed out, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? The church should, in re we don't just call each other brother and sister like they do in a lot of Bible-believing churches that only see each other on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night would never, would never buy each other a washer or dryer or mow each other's lawn or paint each other's house or, or do much for each other. That, you know, you know, the, the kids you grow up thinking that Uncle Stephen really is my uncle. Because he's over here more often than my Uncle Stephen who I see at Christmas and Thanksgiving. This is one of the uh, struggles I have with some of the ethnic groups and so forth that continue to always put, uh, no matter whether they're godly or ungodly, they put their national identity ahead of their Christian identity. Who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? You guys. You know, my wife had a meeting with Deanna Brown uh, about a week ago or so. And I don't know how it was for Deanna, but like my wife came out of that meeting and she was so excited. Like, oh, I just love Deanna Brown. It was so wonderful talking to Deanna Brown. And why? Because it's like this is the daughter we've always needed. You know, when Davion walks into the church and Taylor, my heart lights up. When I see Anvesh, I go like, wow, there's Anvesh. Now, because of our culture and so forth, I don't go over and kiss him on the cheek. And, <laughs> and <laughs> but I feel like doing that. <laughs> and I hope he knows he's invited to Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas dinner. This year, we wanted him for Thanksgiving dinner, and some of the other people in the church beat us to it. <laughs> <laughs> which is how it should be. I was like, you're you're not coming for Thanksgiving dinner. He goes, well, I'll work you in when I'm after the grays and the sun. <laughs> like you got five other Thanksgiving dinners to go to before ours. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? Those who hear the word of God and actually do it. And live their life that way. Their marriage is in God's order, not some controlling, manipulative, crazy, dysfunctional thing. The family. You look at anybody who that is struggling with lots of things, there's dysfunction in how they were brought up. Now I'm not so the the good news is. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus, and that doesn't have to rule you. You can get set free and become a new person and develop new character and new patterns. And But you're going to only do that when you get thoroughly immersed in a healthy family, the family of God. Thirdly, the church. Well, that was a good segue into the church. The church is supposed to be a family of families. The reason that we are complementarians, if you know what that's all about, complementarian versus egalitarian, is the, the idea of the egalitarians say, can women be the elders and pastors and so forth? And the answer is no. Because the complementarian viewpoint is that God made man and woman in Christ. There's neither male nor female. They're all one in respect to value and expect to being heirs of the kingdom of God. But they're quite different in functions and responsibilities. 
And just like a family is supposed to be, a husband and wife are supposed to be a plurality of elders, in a sense, raising, managing the money together. Any husband that, that doesn't let his wife, that they're not managing the money together, are, is a fool. If they're not growing up the kids together, they're a fool. If they don't have goals about financial things and so forth, uh, they're fools. And, you know, the husband can't lord it over because in the kingdom, the true lord is a servant. And the husband has been created with greater strength physically to lay down his life to protect his family. And what, what's gotten twisted in evangelicalism is often they'll tell, talk about the headship of the husband and the submission of the wife, but, but the headship of the husband is supposed to be sac- self-sacrificial. You're the, the husband is supposed to keep the demons out of the house. And he's not supposed to just provide financially. He's supposed to be a priest and a prophet, breaking everyone free into the purposes of God for the family. He's supposed to be the primary educator of the children in the ways of God and in everything. Now, you can delegate some things like reading or whatever, but uh, but you're not to just send them to some school and then just not know what the heck's going on. Which is what, you know, starting in the 1950s with, uh, with a, a, a guy named Dr. Benjamin Spock. Anybody ever heard of him? Uh, probably some of you. The, the, the idea began to develop that you should trust your kids to the experts. Just give them over to the state and, and so forth. That's always humanistic man's idea. You know, communist state fascist state they take the kids away from the children so they can brainwash them in the ideas of the state that's what public education is for that's always been what public education is for that goes back to a a book called Plato's Republic and his idea that the philosopher king should rule the society and that they the, the parents the kids belong not to the parents but they belong to the state and that's the mission of public education. That's why the more biblical and Christian people get, and there are you know, lots of Christians set out to be educators, and it gets down to can I teach in this public school or not? Lots of Christians can't do it. Now, there are some people who sometimes it's because they're not very clear about the ideas of God and Christianity. Other times, some people have a grace for it. And I do believe that you know we are sometimes called to be Go into the heart of the enemy camp, and that's why we have Wiz Kids and Kids Rock. And that's why we understand there's an authority structure in God that, that the school belongs to them, but we're, we're there to serve because ultimately the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we're out to capture those souls for Christ. So that's enough about the family for now. But uh, thirdly, educational systems. That's primarily the family's responsibility to educate the children. And all statist, humanistic people believe it's the state's responsibility to educate the children. And that's why guys like Rusas Rushduni, who was called the father of the Christian school movement, was running around in the 1950s saying, as soon as the Supreme Court laid down certain cases that turned upside down the meaning of separation of church and state, he began to say, hey, take your kids out of the public schools and raise them in private schools. 
And that led in the 1960s, Dayton Christian Schools through through that and busing became the largest Christian school organization in the country. But unfortunately, gradually it became philosophically more and more captured by humanism and less and less Christian in its orient philosophies and orientation. And therefore it couldn't cope, you know, and it continued to retreat from the city. Now, now Dayton Christian schools are only in the suburbs. They're only for the richer parents. And the kids are known for sex, drugs, and rock and roll and rebellion and every bit as much as public schools. Be, because the churches are failing, the families are failing. The, every, you know, the Christian, the Christian, you know, I once did a six and a half hour message, won't go that long tonight, called the failure of Protestant Christianity. But we're fa the church is failing. By, and, and if you look at it, in a, if you actually study your Bible, we are not being the city set on the hill. We're not being the salt of the earth. Salt stops corruption. If the church is really the church, and if what we are, we have more Christian TV, more Bibles, more Christian bookstores, more Christian churches than ever before with less and less and less impact on the culture. And if you step back and study the Great Awakening of the 1760s and the Second Great Awakening in, the, I believe it was the 1830s or so, um, America's Christian influence has steadily declined since the 1760s, much like the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua tells us of a 400-year period where Israel went from being God being their king to becoming more and more like the nations. And became more and more compromised with the nations. And that's exactly the path of Christianity in American history. This country was born by radical Christians called the Puritans and the Pilgrims and so forth. And uh, their, their viewpoints and so forth had completely been overturned by the 1830s. And uh, they, they actually began to decline in emphasis in the early 1700s. They, they kind of got a shot in the arm in the 1760s with Jonathan Edwards and Charles Wesley and, and George Whitfield and what was known as the Great Awakening. But ever since then, the Christian influence of America is declining because the Christian ideas of America aren't Christian. I, I hope you hear that. That's why, you know, when I, from 1991 to 2003, I said, Lord, if I could find one church in the Dayton area that I don't have to compromise 50% of what you've entrusted to us about the church, I will join that church. I don't want to start another church. But I couldn't find such a church. Believe me, new wine has to be put into new wineskins. And if you, if you take a patch and tear it away, uh, you know, put it on a, if you, in other words, if you, we keep doing things the same old way and slap a religious patch on a pair of blue jeans that aren't unshrunk, that aren't shrunk or whatever I'm trying to say, those, they'll rip away. And an old wineskin gets crusty and rigid and it can't, it can't move and breathe with the wine that comes in. It's worth building whole new churches that can handle the wine of God. Because what happened in Acts chapter 2 is nothing for God. If we have the right kind of leadership in place, the issue in Hyderabad 
is going to be, um, can we raise up qualified leadership enough because the thing is going to grow faster than we can handle? Because it's not the gospel-hardened culture that, that ours is hardened. And it's ripe for a breakthrough. And the issue is going to be, can we raise up Christian businesses and, Christ, and Christian leaders and Christian schools and, and all that to form a community of believers and, and there will be an insatiable need for people to grow into leadership quicker. Now, the same situation exists. You know, we have what I uh, frankly call the, the Kenyan problem. If we could get a, a certain, certain kinds of breakthroughs, we can start a church in Nairobi. But you ha- you can't you got to get uh, Kenya out of the Kenyans if you're going to start a church in Nairobi, and that's what I always work on with Sam and and Eric and Edwin and Kennedy. And if God begins to give us certain kinds of breakthroughs, then Nairobi will be a place we plan a church. And w- one of the reasons we're going to go to Wright State and eventually start a church in Xenia at Cedarville, Cedarville by the sovereignty of God, is trying to get more international students to come. Central State University has international students that come already. And eventually we're going to start a church at Ohio State that had, and because right now between Wright Brothers and Wright State is about four and a half miles in 15 minutes or sometimes 20, depending on the traffic, of driving. In Ohio State, uh, you have... Upper Arlington, one of the richest suburbs around, Ohio State University, and the ghetto, all compacted within like two and a half to three miles. And you can reach all of that with less than 10-minute drives. And we can build this kind of church. If this model gets off the ground, we can build the same exact church in Columbus a lot easier. And believe me, I have a plan to, to unite all the leadership of the, of the three into one movement of, of training and equipping and releasing leaders. And guess what Ohio State University has? Sorry. It has students from uh, 90 different countries out of the 100. And last I counted was back in the 80s. There were, there were 88 countries that had students at Ohio State University out of the 110 or so countries there are in the world today. My favorite t-shirt, I used to have two of them, was it said, Ohio State University, the world is our campus, and it had little flags of each of the nations on the whole front, and the whole, it took the whole front and the whole back just to have a little uh, inch and a half high by maybe two and a quarter inch wide flag of each one. There was like four rows of flags on both sides. God is bringing the world to us. The key is, can we actually believe this vision enough to become radically nutty, discipled, bonkers for God kind of people? Because you know we can we can actually train and disciple people from from any nation in the world on those on Wright State, Central State, Cedarville, and Ohio State campuses. And we don't need a missions organization. We just need to become a missions organization. We need to become Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, 
Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Dayton is our Jerusalem. Xenia is our Judea. Uh, Ohio State is our Samaria. And, and the nations are the uttermost parts of the world. And we can plant churches. Uh, my, my hope is that we'll have several of those churches planted before I die. So the church is the third institution. And re-examining everything about the church, unfortunately, there's not one good book you could read about the church today. Uh, there are, If you read when the church was a family, you'll understand the community part of the church and why plurality of leadership is important and servant leadership and why staying in one church until you become completely healthy is really important and things like that. But it doesn't cover so, so many things it needs to cover. Uh, then if you take Peter Lighthart's book called The Kingdom and the Power, Restoring, Reclaiming the Centrality of the Church, it'll help you understand the Lord's Day and why all the aspects of ancient liturgy and stuff have to be in the church. The, the evangelicals threw out weekly communion after the Civil War. There was no churches ever that didn't take the communion every, every Lord's Day before that. They threw out the idea of, in the name of being more spontaneous to the Spirit, they threw out reciting creeds and having any scripted liturgy because we don't want to have any scripted liturgy because we have to be open to the Holy Spirit. That was long before the Pentecostals. That idea was pr promoted by what became, you know, the Baptist, the Christian Missionary Alliance, the Nazarenes, etc. But from ancient times, the church recited creeds. Read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, when he, when he pr shows you that several, several verses of 1 Corinthians 15 was used as a creed right after the resurrection in all the churches that were growing out of Jerusalem. That's what Paul means when he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also proclaim. Uh, he would, how did, what I also received, I mean, how did he receive it? He received it in the creeds that all the churches recited. And some of the words of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed still go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And that creed grew and developed as the church uh, faced uh, challenges to, to Orthodox biblical faith. The creeds developed until they took their present form by the 4th century because they overcame every cult that came against it. Now, one of the most important things about restoring the church is we need to proclaim king creeds because we're proclaiming the mysteries of God in heavenly places. We're actually doing spiritual warfare. You might as well just get your sword out and chop a few demons' heads off while you're saying the Nicene Creed. Because the church used it to overcome Arianism and Marcionist, Marcionist and uh, Pelagianism and all kinds of heresies and because by, by the time the Nicene Creed was developed, all the heresies of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century were destroyed by the creeds. And there, and there was only a few heresies that emerged throughout the centuries, the Lollards and um, oh, there was one in the Albigensians and some different things. But, but for the most part, there were very few heresies until modern times when the evangelicals got the bright idea 
of who cares what the history of the church is. We just want to be Bible-believing, and because we don't read the Bible very thoroughly and we don't understand the history thereof, we don't think there are creeds in the Bible. There's quite a few creeds in the New Testament that were recited by the churches. So we won't say them because we need to be more open to the Spirit. And as soon as that happened, the modern cult started to develop. And all the modern cults have the same ideas as the ancient cults with a new label. They're Gnostic and, and deny the deity of Christ and so forth. They were wiped out by the creeds and they were reintroduced because the, the church conceded the ground. So, I'm, you know, I, I need to move on because I, I do want to finish tonight. But I, I need you to see that this restoring the church, plurality of elders, servant leaders, all of it is so important. It's not that common to have churches today where everybody knows the scriptures. Even in our own movement, which is not as radical as, or as I'd like, but, you know, one of the encouragements of Ned Berube, our, the president of the ARC, and is, when, you know, he sees you guys doing having your theology study groups and, and up here praying and so forth, and he says that, you know, that used to happen all the time in churches in the 60s and 70s. When, you know, Bowling Green, uh, Tuesday night was Foundations Night. And the Thursday night meeting was four hours, and the messages were 90 minutes, <laughs> and the worship was about two hours, and it was exciting. And sometimes you'd see clouds. I, I, the, the church actually would, like, be enveloped in clouds. Like, you'd look out the windows, and the clouds would descend on the church where we were worshiping. It, there was a move of God. Young ladies in the church regularly testified that I was walked home by an angel after my class on Thursday night. And uh, healings, deliverances, it was all normal. And it should be. And that's what the purpose of these prayer means is we need to start praying for healings and outpourings of the Spirit and faith to emerge and zeal. The church needs, if it looks like the book of Acts, and if we start going, oh, man, it's another common everyday book of Acts miracle. <laughs> you know, you know. So the guy grew a new finger, you know. Praise God. Can't wait to see the guy grow a whole new hand. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, you know, uh, all of it, there's no part of it. The problem is you can't find a Christian book that covers everything that needs to be restored in the church. I haven't been able to find one really, really good book on restoring the gospel. And believe me, I've been on a quest to find those kinds of books for 12 years now on those two subjects. We're actually going to be asked, there's a book that there's five or six copies on the back top called uh, Church Membership, which is written by the nine marks of a healthy church people who are Baptists, and so they put the kingdom in the future, not in the present, in the past, and so forth. But it's darn good book on why you need to be a covenant committed member of a church and for the most part and it makes the case what we what we're finding is we got to find books that not only make the case but the truth is when the church was a family and peter lighthearts the kingdom and the power is too requires too much education and reading level for lots of people in our church so we're trying to find simple books if we can but the but this restoring the wineskin is is absolutely essential and the biggest the biggest thing, the reason I'm having these meetings is the biggest thing that is that that is is going to make or break Grace Christian Fellowship 
is can we get beyond three couples and their wives that are qualified to be biblical elders? Can we have, like, a real, what really builds a church is when you get a bunch of single people on fire for God. Who don't have to come home and change diapers. Or make dinner for their hubby or whatever. They just go to Taco Bell. <laughs> oh, help us, Lord. Okay, so uh, the church. Educational systems. Every society has them. The biblical view of educational systems is that the husband is the primary educator and and the husband and wife are a plurality, so they raise the kids together. The reason Deanna Brown plays the piano so nicely is because her mom taught her, right? You probably had some other lessons besides your mom, right? Because every kid wants to not have their mom do everything, right? Do you have other lessons besides your mom? You figured it out yourself. Well, good. That's even better. You're empowered by your musical parents. You know, uh, what we, you know, educational systems, uh, we, we're living in a crisis of education. The whole thing is messed up on every level. There's all, there's all this, you know, debt program. People are graduating from college full of federal debts. And, and the liberals, like the, this book, quit, please stop helping us. You know, like people are, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. People are graduating with college without any counsel about what's a wise major to major in, in terms of economic future, and uh, a boatload of debt. That in many cases, you know, like ask Terry Pellegrino because he's a banker. He'll he'll actually you could just give him a figure of student loans. And he'll go, well, you'll probably uh, need to work till you're in your mid forties before you can own a home. I had my I owned my first home when I was 24 years old, and I was still in college. <laughs> you know, well I was a grad student, but uh, you know. Uh, the, the every you know in the 50s when when the uh, phonics was thrown out in former in favor of a philosophy of reading called look say uh, a Christian guy wrote a book called why Johnny can't read in the 70s or was it the 80s he wrote a sequel called why Johnny still can't read <laughs> and uh, you know there's a crisis of reading you know, we used to emphasize the four R's, or the four R's, three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Of course, two of those three don't really start with R's, just, uh, you know, there was kind of a joke. But, uh, you know, like people don't have the building blocks of problem solving. And the, you can do it. You know what your father's supposed to help you do? Your father's supposed to love you enough to give you the enough security to say, Okay, I'm 15 feet from the edge of the pool. Come on and jump. You can make it. <laughs> Your father's supposed to lovingly help you see that you, by the grace of God and under the power of God, you could be a lot more than you ever imagined. Eye is not seen nor ear heard. And education, um, man, I, I can remember when I, uh, Josh McDowell's book called More Than a Carpenter. I can remember my one son when I had him read it in fourth grade. He was like, Dad, you know this is a book written for college students. And I said, yeah, and you were raised in our home. So 
read this book now and um, I'll give you like one day per chapter and here's a dictionary and we'll discuss chapter one tomorrow. And he nailed it. He totally understood it because I told him he could. And I gave him the tools that he needed. And I required it of him. He wasn't going to get to go to baseball practice if he didn't do it or whatever. You know, you know, your father says you can do more. And education is, is paramount to everything. You look at any successful CEO, they've done lots of studies, the only thing they can find that's common to all successful CEOs is all CEOs read a lot about a lot of different subjects. Personality types, they don't have, they just can't find any other common threads except for people who are successful read a lot. There's a reason why we've developed a culture of not reading as we become more and more ungodly and more pagan. All right, fifthly is economic systems. Stephen, hang in here long enough to hear this one. You can go in just a second. Um, freedom. Now, you can read Honest Money by Gary North and talk about money and banking and so forth, but uh, if, you, if you can, read George Gilder's Wealth and Poverty. It has a lot to do with my vision of why I want to plant churches in developing countries. Because, you know, the, what I did from 1991 to 2011 for over 20 years was I, I financed and coached small family businesses into a success. And that's why Africa is still poor. It's the first time in the history of Christianity that the gospel has swept an area of the world and it hasn't lifted it out of poverty because the modern dispensationalist Gnostic treatise gospel has swept Africa. The Americanized gospel has swept Africa and so it's had no economic ramifications. And people say, why would you want to go to Africa to start a new church? Because they need a biblical kingdom church. That's gonna from the through through the building on these seven institutions is gonna change the entire culture. The self-government of a Christian man or woman, the family, and the church is a three-legged stool. If you know anything about three three points, all three points make a plane, and a triangle is the most stable uh, shape of in the whole universe. And that triangle is the basis of the kingdom of God. When the church creates healthy individuals and the church is full of healthy individuals and the church is a family of families and the church has a dominion mandate to go and spread the kingdom into education, into business and vocational economic situations and so forth, we, the, we can lift whole nations out of poverty. The Protestant work ethic did it in the first place. We got to get the government out of it Thou shalt not steal should apply to the government. We've got to get Christians to quit giving 2 or 3% of their income and really believe in Christ and, the, and his kingdom. Give 10, 20, 30% of their income. And we've got to start micro-businesses. And they've got to be creative and world-changing. And that's, you know, so uh, the, the realm of business... Um, what humanists always want is they have a three-legged stool and they want to, to take, they want to control the economy of a country, planned economies. So they want number seven, 
to control number five and to control the media. We're supposed to have a free media in our country, but for the most part, we have, we unfortunately, we the, the government has captured the, the educational systems and infused it with its pagan, anti-Christian, secular, humanistic, anti-Christ worldview, and they've infused uh, the, um, the um, uh, business world with a planned economy and so forth, in their Robin Hood theology of rob take steal from all the productive people and penalize anyone who keeps their marriage together and anyone who works hard and and so forth, so we can re- rescue all their irresponsible people. And when we and when you pay them more, whatever you whatever you pay for, you get more of. It's you know in you know all this liberalism is in the face of statistics that show that it it, it is not a it, it's not a theoretical issue. It's a proven fact. There's black and white tons of statistics and numbers that show that the government programs are what is creating the breakdown in the family and the poverty. And and so humanistic man wants the state to guard everything. If you go back and study Babylon, Mesopotamia, Egypt, uh, the Medes, the Persians, the Babylonians, the, the Greeks, etc., uh, humanistic man wants the state to plan the economy. And their three-legged stool is to capture the educational systems and the uh, and plan the economies with their statist antichrist worldview. And that's why, you know, we are not Democrats or Republicans. If there's any political philosophy out there that we would embrace, it would be uh, what I would call a constitutional libertarianism. Uh, probably Ron Paul was the most godly candidate that's ever run for a public office in America, and 90% of Christians don't have enough Christian worldview to know that. So, with that, uh, the media, of course, Christian entertainment tends to be mediocre and so forth, and we need to uh, call to excellence, and that's Frankly, Christians have made a lot of progress in that in the last 50 years, frankly. You can take off. But lastly, like we need to get the whole Christian moral majority attitude out of here. It's We can't just vote for a couple Christian governors and a couple Christian senators and maybe a Christian president and hope it'll change anything. Because until they renounce the status philosophy... You're just voting for the lesser of two evils. Do you want a, a philosophy that wants to drive the, us off a cliff at 40 miles an hour or 80? That's what you're voting for most of the time. How fast do you want to kill us? <laughs> Slow or fast? What is, you know, like Social Security. What is Social Security saying? Let us manage your retirement. And what it does is takes away the family's responsibility and it takes it creates a culture of poverty because part of the culture of poverty is you don't invest and save and plan. And so you let the government do it for you and it disempowers you. So... I guess we'll end with uh, just, again, reiterating that humanistic man 
always want statism. And if you actually go back and study the ancient cultures, uh, the, and you study the Protestant Reformation, the reformers who came here and began to say, let's build the kingdom of God in the wilderness of North America, clearly understood family, church, business. They wanted civil government. I need to say one more thing about civil government. The average person today thinks civil government is a national federal civil government. Our founding fathers wanted civil government to be as local as possible. The primary units of government in colonial America up until after the war for independence and after the overthrowing of the Articles of Confederation for the Constitution was the city and most importantly the county. And there, there's a thing that people, uh, you, some of you have probably heard of the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers was after they, after they wrote the Constitution when they were trying to get the states to buy it, it was, uh, it was a debate that were held in the New York, Uni New York City um, newspapers. And what you never get told is there's just as many what's called the Anti-Federalist Papers. But nobody publishes those in a book anymore, but you can find them online and read them. And they were basically saying, you're creating too strong of a natural government, of a national civil, you know, government. You're, because George Washington and, and the like wanted a, government, a federal government strong enough to compete for empire with France and Spain and England. And they knew they were, they, they were uh, breaking down a certain level of freedoms. Now, in the debates and so forth, a lot of people said, well, we're not going to sign this until there's a Bill of Rights. And so the Bill of Rights was the first ten amendments to the Constitution because many states said, we'll sign the Constitution on the condition that the Bill of Rights come. And the Bill of Rights was actually based on George Mason, uh, a, a great political thinker in Virginia, his uh, Virginia's Bill of Rights. But the anti-federalists were saying you're creating too strong of a national government and it'll eventually grow and grow and grow and become our masters. Um, the Bible's not against civil government, but a biblical view of civil government would be that government governs less. This is a quote from one of the founding fathers anyway, which governs the least. And the founding fathers said, do not have a government of men but bind them down by the chains of the Constitution. One of the things that's happened in the last 102 years is increasingly um, the Constitution has been ignored and the people don't know enough to call the government on it. So in the 1950s, when we entered Korea and said it's a police action, we started a precedent that now American presidents can send presidents, president and presidents can send American troops to war, but the Constitution requires that Congress vote up or down on any wars. And the reason Congress never wants to have an opinion, they skirt around it by, like, they didn't, no one said or, that George Bush can, could enter Iraq. They said, we'll promote, we uh, have passed a bill that the funds are available. Because they know that they're going to have to go back and face their constituency, and on the local level, uh, you can re defeat congressmen and so forth that you never could on the national level. And the Congress bypasses voting. on we'd, we'd, So 
There was, the Korean War was not really a war. It was a police action. The Vietnam War was not a war. It was a police action. The Iraq Desert Storm was a police action. And none of that is allowed by our Constitution. But nobody knows that or gives a care because they also, the humanists took over the education system and they purposely are trying to raise dumb people who can't read and can't think so that you wouldn't actually read the Constitution for yourself and start and go back and study the history. I, I'm very clear about this. I knew very little bit about American history till after I already had a master's degree in American history from a secular university. And after I graduated college with honors and won an assistantship for my graduate degree. And after that, I started reading the original documents and not, not getting the filtered revisionist version that they teach in the public schools. And I began to understand, wow, I bought a total lie and I'm, I have a master's degree in it. I don't know the first thing about American history. Because whoever wins the wars writes the history, whoever controls the government. And every kid is being taught in America a statist, anti-Christian view of American history and of American government. So, you know, with civil government, I want you to understand that what should be the more limitations, there's, there's some important limitations that because man's heart is sinful, therefore the less accountable government is, the more it can be totalitarian. For instance, you take the, uh, what's the Obamacare, uh, what do they call it, the, uh, the something act, whatever. The point is, it's 10 times longer than the Bible so not, not, none of the people even passed it have read the whole thing. The tax code of the IRS is 10 times the size of the Bible also, and not even a full-time accountant can t keep up with what, all of what it means. Because who do they think they are? God asked for 10%. They asked for 35, 40, 50%. And it's actually, you can't break God's law. God's law breaks you. So when you start tithing, you, or stop tithing, God turns you over. You're like, will the nation rob God? So um, now we don't want, to be honest, here's, here's what I would say about, um, about this whole civil government thing. Two important points. One is, uh, let's, we'll talk in a minute about limitations on civil government. But two is, try to avoid those issues in leading people to Christ. Here's why. Um, those, the Bible says those who hate wisdom love death. It, what, I don't get into pro-life versus pro-abortion when I'm leading someone to Christ. If it comes up, I'll explain respectfully why the Christian view is pro-life because of the image of God and so forth. But the, for the most part, here's what's going to happen. When they come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior and get a new heart, those who love wisdom love life. Reading the reverse negative, those who hate wisdom, who is Christ, love death. It is a natural outworking of a lost, blind, humanistic worldview to believe, be in favor of infanticide, abortion, and euthanasia. Because... Not being a Christian, you want to embrace a culture of death. 
So the abortion issue will take care of itself if they come to Christ. Because their new heart in Christ will value the, 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 the image of God in human beings. Now, that doesn't mean I don't do pro-life stuff. And, you know, we have two people in our church that work at the Woman, woman Crisis Pregnancy Center. And uh, we encourage that a lot. Uh, but the, uh, you see what I'm saying? Like, I don't talk about these kinds of issues of economics and so forth with, for the most part when I'm, when I'm leading people to Christ. You know, Davion and Taylor, Davion had been brought up in a culture where he embraced all the statist ideas and so forth. And I stayed away from those things and kept discipling him in Christ and so forth. Now Davion is totally gets it and reads all kinds of, you know, black conservative economists and so forth that understand the importance of freedom and free enterprise and and uh, why the government is destroying the black culture. He, he totally gets that now. And how why the Jesse Jacksons and the Al Sharptons and, and all those people are actually uh, anti-black people. Obama has been the worst president for the black people of in the entire history of America. And over 90% of the black people voted for him. Now, I stay away from all that. You don't hear a lot about that from the pulpit at our church or anything like that because if they come to Christ and get a Christian worldview, that will take care of itself. Secondly, the doctrine of sin necessitates this for us. First of all, we believe that the government should be limited by co covenants, that is, constitutions. So the most important document probably in all American history was written in 1620 called the Mayflower Compact. Because basically the reformers who were on the boat, they were all Puritans coming out of the Reformation. They were, they were blown off course. And so the, 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 the uh, business agreement they had with the Virginia company that had sent them there was no longer valued because they knew they didn't know where they were in terms of latitude and so forth, but they knew they weren't in Virginia, so they knew that the that they had to form a government. So they, on the boat before they came on land, they they wrote the Mayflower Compact, compact, which is the idea that the people need to, the government needs to originate from the people and be be but be limited by a written contract. A constitution and all of American history had that until the 1950s or so. Well, actually, in the night, Woodrow Wilson did some things that kind of knocked back the constitution. Well, frankly, Abraham Lincoln did some things, then Wilson, then Roosevelt. Well, we don't need to go into all that. Set, the, the government should be li limited by a written constitution. Secondly, the government, most people say, well, what's the checks and balances, the three branches of government? right? That was another way, you know, they, they set, but now, uh, functionally, the executive or presidential branch, the Congress, the, the two legislative, the bicameral Congress, and the judicial system, all of those have completely changed roles from what the Constitution says. The reason, the Constitution gave the most paper to Congress, because they anticipated Congress being the most important branch of government, and it's now the weakest, gave the second most to the presidency, and it gave the third most to the judicial, and now the judicial is the strongest branch of government in America. So it's all been turned upside down. 
and they didn't even provide the the constitution provided for the house to be built for the presidency and in a in the uh you know the capital to be built for the for the congress but they didn't even provide the the original judicial met in the basement of the capitol building in some leftover space they they didn't they didn't anticipate the courts being in, that important at all uh, so everyone talks about the limitation of the three branches. The problem is, is that starting with Andrew Johnson in the 1830s and, and thereafter, a fourth branch of government that the Constitution says nothing about has increasingly run things, and they are by far the most important, most powerful branch of government, and that's called the federal bureaucracy. The Constitution says nothing about it in if you took all the federal bureaucracy away that's actually illegal, um, we would take way more in in taxes than we need to. The reason we deficit spend is because 80-some percent of the government's budget is, is the federal bureaucracy, which is not even allowed by the Constitution and, and runs and is way more powerful than the presidency, the Congress, and the judicial system, and it's a permanent unelected, unaccountable bureaucracy. Finally, the, the Constitution originally uh, basically left whatever powers weren't specifically enumerated to the federal government were retained by the states. All that was overturned by the Civil War. The states wanted to leave the Union, and the federal government said you can't leave the Union. It wasn't just about slavery. What The problem with the Civil War was you had you had two uh, Christian nations both fighting for an ungodly principle and both fighting for a godly principle. The, 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 the South was fighting for the reprehensible, uh, totally evil, uh, chattel slavery, but they were also fighting for the freedom of the states to, to, be, uh, to not have to uh, be run by the federal government. And so they were actually, they, they both prayed to the same God and they both were praying for something that was very wicked and both were praying for something that was righteous. The federal government, after 1863, January 1st, 1863, when the, originally the, the, the North was not, the war was not about anti-slavery. Lincoln was not anti-slavery. But he was persuaded to become anti-slavery and wrote what's called the, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. And after that, the North was fighting to free the slaves, which was a godly thing. But they were fighting to put the, the southern states in slavery to the federal government, which was a very ungodly thing. And since that time, the power of the federal government has grown and grown and grown and choked out every aspect of our lives. If uh, anybody's for Texas seceding for the Union, I am. You know, I, I, I wish that, you know, California and Oregon and Washington would break off and form a country. <laughs> Maybe some of the northeastern states could break off from the Union and form a country. Because the more you move away from a, you know, the truth is we, the central government is too big to be, to be accountable. And it's better, especially when you consider that the most powerful branch of the federal government is, is the unelected bureaucracy, and the second most powerful is the unelected judiciary. Um, the federal government has long since been not hampered by the Constitution nor the will of the people. So 
uh, a Christian view would be to return the power to the states, but then the states to return the power to the county. And the more local a government is, the more chance you can actually restrain it. Now, we don't need to get into all that for sharing the gospel, but that's really, uh, that's really a more biblical view of government and, and so forth. And the, and the seventh institution, the civil government. But again, if you can just understand, fallen man wants the, wants the three-legged triangle to be civil government, educate, taking over the educational systems and taking over the economic systems. And uh, biblical man wants to reestablish the self-government of Christian man and woman to restore the family and to restore uh, the church. What we're all about here at Grace Christian Fellowship is restoring individuals, discipling them into maturity, creating healthy families, and restoring the biblical models of the church in every aspect and every respect. Amen.